Let's take a moment and pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we're so grateful to come together in this place this morning and be able to worship you. And even though, Lord, we might be, uh, might be apart, we're not congregated, Lord, like normal, and yet in spirit we're gathered together in this worship experience to celebrate our faith in Jesus Christ, to exalt the name of Jesus Christ, to pray together, Lord, to read the Word of God together, to study from it, Father, and to apply it to our lives. We just pray that all that we say and do in this place this morning has already been pleasing unto you. Lord, it's been a pleasing sacrifice and aroma to you, and I pray that the Word of God, Lord, as it's preached, would be pleasing, would be faithful to the Scripture. And I pray your forgiveness, your cleansing of my heart and mind, Lord, that I'd be pure in a holy vessel before you. So thank you for this day. Thank you for Sunday morning, the reminder of the resurrection of Jesus. Thank you for the songs that stir our heart, Lord. And I just pray now your blessings, Father, upon all those, Lord, who've gathered around to, to listen and to, to worship and to pray and now to, to study the Word of God. We dedicate this time to you. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, again, we're so glad that you've chosen to join us here at St. Sabbath's First Baptist Church for our time of worship as we celebrate our faith in Jesus Christ. And what a great song to uh, confess again our faith in what we believe. Uh, just a little bit ago, uh, uh, Alvino read from the story of Thomas and how he was confronted uh, with the fact that Jesus was alive. Thomas demanded proof. And Jesus came in the midst of them and said, Here, put your hands in my fingers and put your hand in my side and do not be faithless but believing. I mean, it is the will of God that every one of us come to believe in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so John states that. That's really where I want to go this morning is verse 30 and verse 31 that when John writes his gospel message, he writes it with a target in mind. He writes it with purpose. I don't know whether you've heard or not, but the, uh, some police in uh, Maryland had to post a Facebook message and remind residents that when they go to their mailbox, they need to wear their pants. Did, did you happen to see that? And so the Facebook post actually says we want to remind our citizens that when you go to check your mail to make sure that you're wearing your pants. And the message went on to say, you know who you are, and this is your last warning. It sounds like a pretty targeted message to me. I also read where the longest archery shot in the world was in 2015. A man was able to hit a target from 930 feet. It's incredible. It's the Guinness's Book of World Records. And what's even more amazing is he has no arms. He is a paraplegic. He shoots his bow and arrow using his teeth and his feet, but he holds the world record in the longest shot. I say that simply to say that when John wrote his gospel, he wrote it with a target. When I was in seminary, our preaching professor said, now when you get up to preach, you need to know what it is you want to accomplish in your sermon. He said, you're much more likely to hit a target if you set one up. So John sets up a target. He says, I have written this book in order to persuade you to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that in believing, you may have life in his name. When you read the Gospel of John, you understand it's written with a target in mind. It's written to be persuasive. It's written to convince. John doesn't share everything that Jesus said. In fact, he said, I could never share it all. 
but he shares seven miracles and he shares the seven I am statements and the death and resurrection. And then he says, truly Jesus did many other miracles, signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written so that you might believe. What a wonderful thing. And so if you have friends or you have people that are cynics or skeptics or seekers, John's gospel is a great gospel to give them because the author wrote the book with the intention to persuade people to believe in Jesus Christ. Now, when you think about John writing the book, there's a couple things to note here. Number one, that John wanted to record that chapter in world history where God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, became a man. He didn't want this to go without a record of somebody writing it down. And so John recorded that moment in history when heaven touched earth, when the Son of God became a man. In fact, when you read John's gospel, he begins his gospel. In John chapter 1, verse 1, he says, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. And in Him was life. That's a key phrase in John's Gospel. Uh, and, and His life was the light of the world. And then in verse 14, He says, And the Word became flesh, and lived among us, and we beheld His glory. So John writes his gospel, and he starts in chapter 1 by declaring that the Creator, the eternal Son of God, became a man. And so when you get to chapter 20 of the text, he says, These things have I written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He writes this gospel with that target in mind. Also, John writes, and he confesses, there's no way I could tell the whole story. You know, I think John basically says the life of Jesus is just beyond mere words. In fact, in John chapter 21, verse 25, the last book in John, the last verse in John's gospel, he says that I don't even think the whole world could contain the books that could be written. By the way, I read where the, the largest book in the world, I wanted to know when I read this about Jesus, what's the largest book in the world? Well, the, la the largest book in the world is 7,312 pages. It's 3.2 million words. And I thought, man, you need a real good title if you're going to convince people to spend that much time reading 7,300 pages. Well, here's the title of the largest book in the world, The Blah Story. I'm not making it up. The Blah Story, written by Nigel Tom. So if you're in you know, your isolation and you're looking for some reading, you can spend 7,300 pages on The Blah Story. Or you can read the Bible. You can read the life of Jesus. You can read about that moment in history when God became a man. So John writes the book and he says he wanted to make sure this is recorded. He knows that he's no way he can contain everything that Jesus said and did. And then lastly, John writes it because he's an eyewitness. John doesn't write his gospel based on hearsay. He doesn't write, it's not rumor, it's not conjecture, it's not speculation. John was a first-hand witness of what Jesus said and did. In fact, in John chapter 19 and verse 35, after the crucifixion, this is what John said. And he, 
who has seen has testified. And his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. How interesting that the author of the gospel says, I was there. I heard him. I saw him. I saw him crucified. I saw him risen again. When John writes his letter, he writes the gospel of John, and then he writes the books of 1st and 2nd and 3rd John. And in 1st John chapter 1, listen to what he says. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. See, John begins the letter. He says, hey, I'm not telling you rumor. I touched him. I saw him. I heard him speak. I was with him for three years. I'm not telling you about rumors or conjecture. I'm an eyewitness to the fact the Son of God became a man and lived among men. And then John says, and I write this. These things I've written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and in believing you may have life in his name. Now really there's two targets here if you are asking, what is John's purpose? Two targets. One, to convince you to believe the claim that Jesus made about himself. What is the claim that Jesus made about himself? That he is the Son of God. He claimed to be the Messiah. The word Christ is this word Christos, and the word Christos is a Greek word meaning the anointed one, the appointed one, the Savior, the Messiah. The Jewish people were looking for God to send a Savior, and John says Jesus claimed to be that Savior. He was welcomed into Jerusalem as the Son of God, as the Messiah. They sang to him and said, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then he was crucified on the cross, and then he rose from the dead. But John writes because he wants to convince the reader to believe that Jesus is the Christ. You know, early on in John's gospel, Jesus is recorded as saying, For God so loved the world. These are the words of Jesus. That he gave his only begotten Son. That whosoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. I mean, John is true to this point all through his gospel, convincing people to believe. And the enemies of Jesus knew what he was claiming to be. You can go read in John chapter 10 and verse 32. And Jesus says, for what good work are you going to stone me? And in verse 33, the enemies of Jesus say, it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for hypocrisy, for blasphemy, because you, being a man, claim to be God. Now, they knew what he was claiming. He was claiming equal authority, equal power, that he was God in the flesh. And so John writes his gospel to convince people to believe. And there again, I think it's a great book. If someone says, well, I just don't understand much about the Christian faith. I don't know about who Jesus is. I don't know really what the Bible's for. Tell them to start in the gospel of John. Because John wrote his gospel to persuade, not to entertain, not to make a name for himself, but to persuade people to believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of the living God, and in believing, they would have life in his name. Now, that's the second target. First target is to that you'll believe. The second target is that you would have life 
in his name. Now this word life is used a lot in John's gospel. It's also used a lot in John's letters. It's used a lot by Paul. We're very familiar with the verse that says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the word life is used a lot. It was Jesus who said, I am the resurrection and the life. If any man believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. It was Jesus who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one can come to the Father except through me. I mean, we see this repeated frequently in the text, the word life. It's the Greek word zoe. It's from the, we get the word zoo from this word. It's speaking about life. But people say, well, wait, everybody has life. If you're breathing and you're walking and, and you're living and you're thinking, then you have life. But that's not the life that John is speaking about here. He's speaking about eternal life. He's speaking about abundant life. Sometimes in the Bible it's called everlasting life. Sometimes abundant life. Sometimes eternal life. In this text, he simply says it's life. A moment ago, they read from 1 John 5, verse 11. And, and John says this is the testimony that we have eternal life. And this life is in the Son. He who has the Son has life. And he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. And that's what John says. And that's what Jesus' claim was. To understand this eternal, abundant life. And I want to know this morning, do you have eternal life. And what is this life? Let me just suggest a couple things to you. This life, number one, is spiritual. He's not talking about physical life. He's not talking about just existing. The life that Jesus talked about and that John describes is a spiritual life. Okay? It's a life that's connected to God. It's a relationship with God. That relationship was broken when sin entered the world. We were separated from God. But when you know Jesus Christ, you come back into fellowship with the God who made you. That's the life he's talking about. Now listen to John 17. Jesus is praying for his disciples in John chapter 17. And in verse 3, this is what he says. It's, very, it's a great verse. He says this is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. He defines eternal life. He says eternal life is to know God and to know Jesus Christ. The only way you can know God the Father is through His Son, Jesus Christ. If you don't know Christ, you can't know God. And so the eternal life is about a relationship with God. It's spiritual in nature. It can't be bought with money. The eternal life is not having the wealth of this world. Eternal. In fact, the Bible says the rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, What must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said, Give all your money away and come follow me and you'll have riches in heaven. And the Bible says the man went away sad. Because he was very wealthy. Eternal life is not about wealth or pleasure or possessions. It's not even about your circumstances on this earth. You can live eternal life in prison. You can live eternal life in poverty. 
In fact, this uh, Johnny Erickson taught us. She's a quadriplegic. She was she broke her neck in a diving accident, and she hasn't been able to move. She lives in a wheelchair, but she experiences eternal life because she has fellowship with the living God. Hey, that's it's spiritual in nature. I know a lot of people have got their stimulus checks. If you don't know what to do with yours, well, just send it to me. I'll put it to good use. Uh, the Bible says every good and perfect gift is from the Lord. So be careful how you spend your money. They, you know, God's entrusted you this, so be careful how you spend it. One man received $8.2 million in his bank account. He was taking some cash out of his ATM, and the receipt showed he had $8.2 million. He thought, wow, what a stimulus check. He already began to think about how he was going to spend it when he checked with the bank, and the bank said, oh, that was an error. You really only have $13.69 in your account, not $8.2 million. So money, I mean, it comes and goes. And we think, well, if I just had a lot of money, then I would have this abundant life. But that's not according to Scripture. What gives abundant life, what gives eternal life, is the presence of God living in you. Paul said it like this in Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. He said, Christ in you is the hope of glory. He said again in Colossians chapter 3, verse 4. He says, when Christ, who is our life, appears. Eternal life is spiritual. It's the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ who comes to live inside of you. Paul said it like this in Romans chapter 8, verse 11. He says, but if the spirit that raised up Christ from the dead lives in you, if this spirit comes, the Holy Spirit comes to live in you, the, the spirit that raised up Christ from the dead will also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that lives in you. Now you think about this now. You were born once. When you came through your mother's womb, that's called a, a water birth. The water broke and you were born into this world. And Jesus said, but you have to be born again. One birth isn't enough. You've got to be born a second time by the Spirit of God. You, this is a spiritual birth. And you're brought into the family of God. And God gives you His name. And He becomes your Father. And you become a child of God. And that's when you receive eternal life. It's spiritual. It's not physical. So John says, hey, I've written this book so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And in believing, you may have life in his name. It's spiritual. Number two, it's practical. You say, well, what are the benefits of this eternal life? Well, I, there's a couple. One is forgiveness. How wonderful. When, when you come to faith in Jesus Christ to know that your sins have all been forgiven. All the sins of the past. All the sins of the future. Christ died on the cross and he rose from the grave. And the Bible says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This, this eternal life is practical in the sense that it's the forgiveness of sins. Also, it's fellowship with God. I mean, God, the God who made you, you walk with him. You can pray to him. He comes to live inside you. And you know him personally. And then you have purpose in life. 
I mean, you actually know the reason you were created. You were created for the glory of God. You were created for fellowship with God. You don't have to walk in darkness anymore, the Bible says. You have the light of life. The very God who made you has come to live inside you, and He empowers you to live in such a way that you bring glory to Him. There's purpose in living when you have eternal life. This life is spiritual, this life is practical. It's, it's uh, forgiveness of sin. It's fellowship with God. It's purpose in living. And then also, the fourth thing that's practical about it, it's peace and death. When you have eternal life, you don't have to be scared of death anymore. In fact, the Bible suggests that this life, this eternal life, is everlasting. Okay, so it, it lasts forever. When we die on this earth, we just transition into the very presence of God. When we are saved, when we come to believe in Jesus Christ, His presence comes to live in us. And when we die, we go to live with Him. Paul said, if I live, I'll live for Christ. If I die, I go to be with Christ. Either way, this is eternal life. Eternal life is spiritual, it's practical, it's everlasting, it lasts forever. The Bible says in John chapter 3 and verse 36, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life. That's what it says, eternal, forever. And then lastly, it's daily. Eternal life is every day. And eternal life began the moment you were saved. So I've had people say to me, um, Brother Sam, I just can't wait to die so I can start living my eternal life. So I've got news for you. You started living your eternal life the moment you became a follower of Jesus Christ. We're not waiting till we die. God has come to live in you. The Spirit of God lives in you right now. Your sins have been forgiven right now. You have purpose for life right now. All the fruit of the Spirit is yours right now. Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, meekness, faithfulness, self-control. All of those things are yours right now. You are living your eternal life right now. What an amazing thing. The very life of Christ being lived out through you right now. Now you can't live the life of Christ without the life of Christ. That's why John said, I, these things have I written to you that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that in believing you may have life, life, eternal life, abundant life in his name. And this life is daily. I think this is why John, I mean Jesus, said in Luke, in chapter 9, verse 23, he then said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. 
See, as a pastor, what I've seen in my years of ministry are people who are saved. You, you, you'll ask them, have, have you, are you a Christian? Are you a follower of Christ? And they'll say, yeah, I was saved when I was a child 25 years ago. But they're not living a life that reflects an eternal life. They're not living with joy. They're not living with a sense of peace and, and all the fruits of the Spirit. They were saved years ago, but, but what I want to know is, not when you were saved, but how is your relationship with God today? Because Jesus said, if a man's going to follow me, let him deny himself every day and let him take up his cross every day and follow me. In other words, if you're going to let this life of Christ be lived out through you, it needs to be every day. I sanctify myself. I die to myself so that I can live to Christ. Lord, I want my mind to be set apart for you, my heart for you, my eyes, my ears, my mouth, my, my feet. I want every part of my life to be set apart for the Lord Jesus Christ so his Holy Spirit has the, has the authority, has the freedom to fill every part of me every day. I want for the Lord Jesus to have freedom to live his life through me every day. So the question would be, if you're not experiencing all the fruits of God's spirit, if you're not living with joy, if you don't have that sense of, of God's presence in your life, what is it in your life? What sin, what habit, what, what other God have you set up that's competing with the authority and the power of God's Spirit. See, Paul talked about that in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. He said, do not grieve the Spirit of God whereby you've been sealed for that day of redemption. Don't, don't grieve His Spirit. So it's possible as a Christian to have surrendered my life to Christ at some point. But then through life, I just strayed away. Really hadn't been feeding on the Bible. Haven't nourished my soul. I'm not worshiping with people. I'm not praying like I once did. I mean, there's no passion for my faith. I've just got distracted from the, from the Lord and I'm in this world and I'm living for the pleasures and the things of this world. And that, that, uh, Passion that once for, was for Christ is no longer there. Something in your life each day competing with God's authority over your life. Every day, I think a Christian should take a moment in the morning and say, Lord, you know, this is a new day. And I am dying to myself today so that I can let you live through me. This is how Paul put it, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul said, I want to be dead to myself, crucified with Christ, so that the life of Jesus can be lived through me. Ah, the Christian faith is a daily journey.
I'm not saying you get saved over and over. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying every day I'm submitting my life to the authority of God for him to live through me through the power of his Holy Spirit so that I can experience all the benefits, all the joy that God intends for me to have in this life today. That may be you this morning. You may be saying, Brother Sam, you are, you are targeting me. I know that you're reading my mind. You must have read my biography because I was saved as a child and I don't have any of the fruits of the Spirit and I'm filled with bitterness and I'm filled with, I'm just distracted. What do I do? You don't need to get saved again. I'm not saying that. I am saying every day you need to surrender your life to the control of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every day, sanctify body, soul, and spirit. Lord, I am dead to myself so that today, today, I want to speak what honors you. I want to hear what honors you. I want to go where it ever honors you. I want my life to be lived under the control of the Spirit of God every day. Hey, I heard about a man who really wanted to leave Europe and come to the United States. This was way before planes and it was just only by ship and so he saved and scraped and waited and finally he purchased a ticket for a long voyage, six weeks, to get from Europe to the United States. He took all his belongings that he had, a few clothes and a few things and and he had a little cot, a little place he could sleep on the ship, and he, and he brought along food. Crackers, and cheese, and peanut butter. So on this voyage, every day on this ship, he would eat crackers, and cheese, and peanut butter. Sometimes he'd mix it up, he'd eat the cheese first, and, and then the crackers. Sometimes it would be the peanut butter, and then the cheese. You know, through the course of the trip, you know, the peanut butter kind of got dry and crackers kind of got stale and the cheese got a little moldy. But every day for six weeks, breakfast and lunch and supper was crackers and cheese and peanut butter. And every day he'd smell the aroma from the kitchen and the dining room of that ship. He was thinking, man, how I'd love to eat just one meal in that dining room. But he didn't have money, so he ate crackers and cheese and peanut butter. And the last day of the journey, land was in sight. It'd be a few hours before they would get off the ship. And he went to the porter and he said, say, what would it cost to just eat one meal in, in the dining room? I smell it every day. What would it cost to eat one meal in the dining room? And the porter looked at his ticket and he said, sir, all your meals are included. For six weeks, he ate crackers and cheese and peanut butter when he could have been feasting in the dining room because it all been paid for. When Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose from the grave, he didn't just save you for the hereafter. He saved you for the here and now. Your eternal life began the moment Christ came to live in you. And you're on a journey through life, and it's your choice every day. Who are you going to let rule? 
You're going to live submitted to the Spirit of God. You're going to experience the, the abundant life, the joy, the peace that God brings through His presence in your life. Or are you going to keep eating crackers and cheese and peanut butter? Oh, you're saved. But you're not experienced the life that God intended for you to have. Why not this morning change directions? Lord, I want everything that you have for me to experience in this life. I want to be dead to myself so I can be alive to you every day. And so the Bible says, if you die to yourself, then Christ Jesus will fill you every day and you'll experience that eternal life he intended for you to have. Let's bow together as we pray. Lord, I thank you that you are merciful, that you are gracious. I know that in my life there have been many, many times that I thought I knew better than you. Many times, Lord, that I lived distracted. Lord, uh, away from you, separated from you. And I'm grateful today that we are secure in your love and secure in your grace. But I know, God, that every day we've, we battle within. For who's going to control, Lord, our lives? And I just pray this morning that, uh, that we as believers would resolve in our heart to just let you be Lord. Like Paul said to the church at Rome, I urge you, therefore, brothers, to make your lives a living sacrifice unto the Lord, which is your reasonable service. Lord, I pray today for believers that are watching this, uh, this service, Lord, being a part of this Bible study, that the Spirit of God would quicken up their heart, Lord, bring deep conviction of who they are, of where they're living, of what they're doing with their lives, and that today they might, every day, yield their lives to the control of the Spirit of God. Let Jesus have full authority over their life. So, God, we just pause. We ask you now to do a work in us as we sing this song of meditation, of consecration. Lord, may you do a work in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.